much information that you have at your fingertips that it's absolutely awe-inspiring to me. Well, thanks. <laughs> I, I think anybody after 32, three years would be in the same uh, boat. But yeah, we, we can give some general information and yeah. advice and, and guidance, but we really don't want people to... Uh, you know, if, especially if you're at a at a fork where you have to make a critical decision on something, we're just going to give you advice. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the I, time, I'll advise something like, please see a physician or please see a psychologist or yeah. BA, BCBA and and get further guidance. But it's always I I always have said on this journey that knowing which questions to ask is sometimes ninety percent of the battle. Absolutely. If you don't know which question to ask, then a, a lot of times stuff gets left unsaid. So totally true. I I love the fact that. You, you give us direction to go in, information to take with us, and more questions to ask. Oh, I hope so. You do. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank it's you. inspirational. All right, we're going to start with potty training. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because okay. it's one of those things that comes up frequently and somebody's written in a, a, a fairly specific question. They say, I need help with potty training. My son does not want to sit on the seat, on the toilet. He tells us when he needs to go, but he is not, all in capital letters, willing to sit. And she writes in the toilet seat. So, you know, I'm, I'm assuming she means on, but you know, uh, what can I do? And I promised that we would talk about that with you. Sure. So it's an interesting thing that kids sometimes are afraid of the toilet because it's kind of this mysterious place where we don't know where things go. And I think little kids in particular get are afraid of the, the concept of kind of being drawn in and, you know, flushed away or something. Yeah. So sometimes we'll start with if, if your child isn't able to even sit momentarily, then one of the things that you can start with is just a uh, child potty. Mm -hmm. Because with the child potty, you know, you can see the bottom and um, I would actually put the child potty in uh, the bathroom, so okay. close to the toilet. And then um, you can also model, you know, while the child's sitting on the potty, you would be sitting on the toilet showing them that everything's okay. Sometimes with kids it helps to um, throw something in there and so that the child can see that it's not going away. It's there um, and then uh, definitely use a child um, One of those booster seats so that the, the toilet is not so big that the child feels like they're gonna fall in yeah. Um, so those are some ways to get the child just to sit momentarily. If that doesn't work, then, you know, basic shaping, which is just have the child sit for one second, reinforce them, then for two seconds, three seconds, and gradually increase the duration of time. And then in terms of just having the child sit long enough to void, um, you know, it's all about reinforcement. And so you establish how long the child is comfortable sitting there, and then you increase the reinforcers for longer period of time uh, a lot of people will make their bathroom just a more friendly place you can place reinforcers in the bathroom that the child doesn't otherwise have access to um, for instance let's say you can have a TV in there and if the child sits you will play the video, but if they don't sit, then you cut off the video. Those types of things, so it sort of motivates the child to stay seated. Yeah, we uh, had such great potty training here at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, and we literally decked, we took the advice and decked our bathroom out, and it was right. it was party central. Right. It was the happiest place on earth next <laughs> to Disneyland, right? And. Uh, 
And I and I love you reminding us that, you know, putting something on the toilet seat eventually when we get them to that point that makes it less precarious. Yes, yeah, a little bit scary and new for yeah. kids. And they're tiny little buttockses. They can they can they get can hardly, in. I mean the cutest thing is when you see the little guys and they're holding themselves. Yes, you know, balancing. They, yeah. Uh, like on tenterhooks. Uh, yeah. You know, and now I'm now I'm relaxed enough I'm gonna do something here. Yeah. That's right. It's That's a, right. it can be a very scary place. And I and I even as you were talking about it, I was thinking about you know, my middle name is I don't camp. I don't believe in camping. Yeah. I'm not a camper. I'm with you there. Uh, but part of it is is that you go to those outdoor potties. Oh and, yeah. And I am a grown adult person, and they oh. frighten me. Oh my God, I hate them. They're so disgusting. <laughs> they're, just, they're just horrible. Yeah. So you know, and if I feel that as a grown person, and I it's know true. I'm not going to fall down there, what does a four-year-old, what does a three-year-old, what does a two-year-old think of right. you know this this scary little thing that there's a hole? Right. Uh, Another thing, actually, now that you mentioned that, one of the things that we do some Sometimes that helps, and I haven't personally done potty training in so many years, yeah. but I mean, the procedure is the same. It's the old procedure by Fox and Azrin. It's a very good procedure that we've used for, gosh, I've used it since I was trained, so it's a very good procedure. But um, one of the things is if your child actually does uh, either urinate or defecate it in the potty, in the child potty, mm -hmm. then showing the child when you empty it oh. into the larger toilet helps too. Yeah. So for the child to know this is what you're supposed to do. And and make that a celebration too. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, because uh, we, I always tell the story about when we were upstairs in the clinic room having a clinic at one point and we had been working on potty training and we got very used to modeling right. and, and celebrating. And anytime somebody did something in the toilet, it was yay! Yeah. And so we were sitting in the clinic room <laughs> with all of our, uh, you know, our supervisor Stop. and all of the therapists that were working. And my husband excused himself to go across the hallway to the restroom. <laughs> and it's a little here. echoey, right? And so he's by himself in the restroom here uh, in the building. And we weren't hearing anything, but all of a sudden we hear a grown man going, yay! <laughs> Because he'd gotten so conditioned <laughs> to doing hilarious. whatever, anything. And then, and of course, we oh, all yeah. laughed. Just I'm sure my husband will appreciate me that sharing That is so that. funny. Uh, but, you know, the celebration of, yay, sure, it's sure. all good. That whatever it is went in the toilet and it went yeah, away. Yay. That's right. You always have to have those major reinforcers. Yeah. That's so important for the kids. And, you know, it is also important, it just occurred to me say this, I um, that you follow a specific procedure because you really don't want your child sitting there for hours. Right. Like that will actually mess up the entire procedure because it becomes aversive. So um, you do need to follow a set procedure. I believe we have it on, on a bunch of our websites, but I mean, Fox and Azrin Toilet Training Procedure, all behaviorists will know that. And really it has some specific se uh, steps so that you will get to a point where when your child sits for, let's say, 15 minutes or so, they definitely will void. Mm -hmm. You're sort of on a schedule and then you gradually increase the 15 minute durations but uh, you don't want to just have your child sitting there for a long period of time. And I will say too that we've covered toilet training many times on the show and if you go to our YouTube page and just right. put in the keywords and put in toilet training you're going to find everything from Dr. Amy Kenzer to oh, Dr. Terrific. Tarbox to Dr. Grandpache talking about toilet training. That's great. And, um, and so you can see you know everybody's going to say roughly the same thing but you decide you know who you want to hear it from and you can listen 
listed in different ways. Sometimes you hear it different ways from different experts, but it's they're all talking about the Fox and Azrin. Yeah, and we do have also little brochures or trifolds on this subject that we are happy to send to anyone. Okay, great. So if you want to send us uh, your address, mailing address, we can pop one of those in the mail great. to you. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to be back with more with Dr. Doreen Grampache. Send your questions in now. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. We're here with Dr. Doreen Grampache, a true expert and visionary in the field of autism. Thank you. So okay. much. No, it's the, it's the absolute <laughs> truth, and it's my great pleasure to sit here and ask questions on your behalf. We've had a bunch of questions that have come in on Facebook. Okay. Um, one mom wants to know, my five-year-old son is autistic and has ADHD. We're finding more of a problem dealing with the ADHD. Have you any advice on anything we can do with him? He's on a natural diet, no processed foods. We also give him GABA and children's valerian which relieves anxiety but the ADHD has had us stumped as we don't want to use meds thanks for your time she adds yes yeah, interesting because um, I assume the diagnosis of this child is on the DSM-4 and up till this particular DSM-5 you were not supposed to diagnose autism and ADHD together and I kept saying that to all my interns and training everyone on this and the entire world has always diagnosed the two together which is incorrect um, and now on the DSM-5 you're it's the first time we're allowed to it's actually specifically mentioned and that's just because the DSM-5 allows you to have these specifiers so you know, usually can we, can we back up for just a second sure. and talk about why it wasn't allowed? Because, yes, because the ADHD was considered a lesser yes, diagnosis. Yes, exactly. It's sort of like if you were to diagnose uh, pneumonia mm -hmm. and then also diagnose bronchitis. It, okay. it doesn't it doesn't fit because you know you're talking about uh, with autism before it was kind of subdivided in this way of severity and specifiers and modifiers. Now we have, but. With autism, it's a pretty pervasive disorder, and one of the symptoms of it is the inability to pay attention to the things you're supposed to pay attention to. So, and ADHD is pretty complex too. I mean, this parent doesn't um, tell us the detail of what type of ADHD, mm -hmm. and there's you can have ADHD that has just to do with paying attention mm -hmm. like so the child's not at all hyperactive most people see children with the diagnosis of ADHD they think that means the child has to be hyperactive that's right. not true it can be ADHD an attentive type or it can be an ADHD with hyperactivity or it can be with both so the issue is here is um, depending on the symptoms that this particular child is diagnosed with, let's assume both inattentive and hyperactive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the hyperactivity very quickly comes under control when you're doing a, an ABA program. Does the parent mention the age of the child? No. Five-year-old. Five-year-old. Okay. Five-year-old. So assuming that you could be doing an uh, intensive behavioral intervention program, and you know, unfortunately not everybody is. Is, but that sort of thing does come under control because with your ABA team they don't allow the child to be running around or you know going from one thing to the next they actually do help your child focus sometimes I find that our children are um, hyperactive and we're just talking about hyperactivity now 
um, they're hyperactive due to sensory issues. Mm. I mean, that's a pretty common thing. I just yesterday had a child who is so hyperactive that I've been actually thinking about having two therapists with him because one therapist has a hard time keeping up okay. and the child has a lot of different things going on. So the therapist that's with him just burns out within a couple of hours. So I was thinking like, oh my gosh, maybe I should rotate therapists on this case. And then I um, thought, you know, I need, he's very sensory and I need to try some things out. So I bought, I had ordered him a body sock and I just mm -hmm. took it down and gave it to him yesterday. And oh my God, mm. like it was ridiculous because in fact he, he was just asking for the body sock as a reward. And when he had the body sock on, he was just almost sedate like I had to then kind of in integrate it with something like jumping on a trampoline because he was getting too sleepy or mm. too 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 low so the self-regulation stuff that comes with our kids really does the lack of self-regulation of energy and all this sort of stuff really does have a lot to do with how they how active they are mm -hmm. now with hyperactivity often goes in attention because <clears throat> when you're I always say like our kids are functioning I think at a different speed than we are yeah. it's kind of like um, you know how if you uh, it's hard to, I, I, as you know, Shan, like the way that I try to understand our kids is like, I really try to analyze my own life experience all the time. And I think it's kind of like you're, a lot of our kids don't sleep. So, you know, the, the uh, I guess, correlating example would be like, let's say you're jet lagged or something mm -hmm. and you drink a lot of caffeine or you take actually, you know, these drinks, this, this kind of stuff will yeah. help you with a monster. <laughs> But um, <clears throat> so you drink a lot of that sort of thing or you have a lot of um, some sort of stimulant mm -hmm. and uh, then you find people who are just at regular mode of functioning to be kind of irritating because mm. they're just not at your speed. And often if you're that hyper, which sometimes happens to me, um, you will just suddenly recognize, oh my God, I'm just going at double speed right now. I need to slow down. And with, and it's hard to sit down in those moments and for instance, read a document. Yeah. So like if I'm editing a book chapter or something, it's impossible for me to read a long document when I'm that active. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the reason it's because their speed level of just functioning and everything biochemically, everything is just a little bit fast. Mm -hmm. So, in, in other words, I think that bringing down the activity level helps the inattention as well. Interesting. <clears throat> so it's kind of like your child actually has to be able to slow down enough to pay attention to the things they're supposed to. Um, and that really does involve sort of a team of people who can moderate, who can control his activity, who can give him activities that force him to slow down, who can use sensory things like the body suck to slow him down. We also use things like a, um, I forget the name now, what are these things called that you use? Oh, the metronome. For metronome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you'll set a metronome at a very fast speed and then you will, in the background, as mm -hmm. you're working with the child, and then you will gradually reduce the speed and it has wow. an effect on the child's just lowering their level. Yeah. Other things that we've just started to experiment with are, for instance, if there is a calming, soothing um, 
environmental anything. Mm -hmm. For instance, some children will react to the background sounds of ocean waves. Mm -hmm. We will play ocean waves in the background. Actually use one of those uh, sound machines, you know, the sound mm -hmm. machines that have multiple different mm -hmm. types of calming sounds and see if any of them have an effect on your child yeah. because sometimes you'll find that that having that in the background will actually just calm the child down because whatever they've associated a calmness with that environment um, you might actually even want to put that in the child's room when they're sleeping those mm -hmm. types of things so you know add some because our kids I think are so hyper stimulated by all environmental stimuli mm. see if you can produce environmental stimuli that are calming to the child so lower light levels sounds that are more uh, calming perhaps uh, you know allow the child to sit in a large bean bag which helps them feel more supported a lot of times the kids do reduce energy when they have like some sort of pressure uh, around them. That's why they love swimming. So, ah. you know, that's why swimming actually calms them. Some of our kids get calmer when they take a shower in the morning with yeah. water on their head. So you, those are some things that might help, but really it's hard. It's very hard if you have a child who's not attending and is hyperactive, you yourself alone, I don't know if I would be able to handle it. You really do need some help in terms terms of kind of uh, setting up a schedule for the child, regulating, mm -hmm. making sure that the child ha does have calm periods of time scheduled in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then beyond that, learning starts to occur if, if other issue issues are not present. Wow. So much there that I want to comment on. But the first thing I want to clarify is what is a body sock okay. for people who don't know? Uh, yeah, it's like a big <clears throat> sort of made of polyester thing it's about you know you can order it in small medium or large and um it's just like a little it has a hole like, it's like a spandexy kind a of thing. spandex yeah and the child just crawls into it and sometimes kids will want to put just their feet into it or their legs other times you'll see the child immediately just pulling the whole thing over them it has an opening so you can go in but the opening can also be velcroed so it kind of gives them and it's it squishes them you know the child you can't stand up in it you're yeah. you're kind of in an embryo position or you're seated when you're in it um but i'm it's i have never had the experience where a child would feel claustrophobic in it i've always had the experience or most of the time i've had the experience where the child just wants to go all the way inside yeah. and close the thing so it does give our kids a quite a significant sense of, I guess, uh, reduced anxiety, maybe security, safety, that sort yeah. of thing, pressure all over the skin. Um, and then we start to immediately use it as a uh, sort of something that regulates them sensory, but also gives them a rewarding, peaceful time. Yeah. I mean, a lot of parents will say, like, I wish I could just uh, have moments in time where he was down-regulated, you yeah, know, and, and, and that really does help. Absolutely. It, it, it's so interesting because we, we got one for Jem at one point and he loved it, by the way. And before that, the every time the therapist would come in, they would take all the cushions off the couch mm -hmm. and they and would yeah. burrito and yep. squish him in the... Yep. And it reminded me of when he was a newborn and they taught us how to burrito the baby in sure, the blanket. Safety. Yes, exactly. And they said, uh, you know, because I remember saying, isn't that, you know, don't they want to move their hands and don't they 
want to. And they said no because they'll have the feeling that they're falling yeah. through space unless yeah. they're being held tight. Exactly. Uh, so I just that's so it's so amazing that you say that because truly sometimes I look at our kids and. I mean, if you can imagine, like, a lot of our kids have their auditory senses kind of unregulated or off what we experience, and then they're visual, for sure. It's a lot of the kids where they're just looking at you like this or like this, or, you know, they, there's no question they have some uh, perceptual problems, not vision, but how they see things or how they perceive things. And almost as if, you know, and I always want, with those kids, I really want to test out things like, colored lenses or prisms that might help them actually see things the way we do. Mm -hmm. But it does make them feel pretty anxious. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like looking through things through a prism or a glass and it makes the kids not, and I can understand that because one of the yeah. very earliest things that in uh, normal babies when they're developing is a sense of, uh, De, you know, uh, depth perception mm -hmm. and being able to actually identify kind of levels of mm -hmm. things and figure ground discrimination. Mm -hmm. And as you know, a lot of our kids have problems with that. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, the body sock does help those types of things. Very interesting. And you can search those. There are several different companies that make them and you can search them online and we'll see if we can find a couple to recommend and put on our, our Facebook site. But fascinating stuff. Fascinating yeah. stuff. And the other thing that I wanted to comment on was I so appreciate you saying that there, that a child can wear a therapist out and that there might be a child that potentially needs two therapists because as parents, oh, yeah. we judge ourselves about, well, I should oh, be able gosh. to do this. I should be able it's my child no, I should yeah. be able to and we beat ourselves up when we reach a limit we talked yesterday on the show about a new study that came out that shows that one hour of respite a week makes a huge difference in how the marriage survives one hour yeah and yet we, we all have this you know program running in the back of our heads parenting guilt 101 <laughs> 3.0 that's running in the back of our heads that says well it is my kid I should be able to cope Right. It's unbelievable. It's, it's just, it's an amazing experience. Um, I, I don't know if you know, but um, Vince Redmond, yes. our um, director of family services, is working very hard to try to put together a, um, I guess he calls it family night out, mm -hmm. where what we really want to do is have our families have specific dates every month that they can just drop their kids off at one of our centers and go out. Yeah. Whether it's weekend or evening. And I think it's a terrific idea. It is. And we're trying to get it started. He's actually done all the legwork. The only um, hold up, I guess, in the process for us is all the legality involved yeah. with um, not only dropping your child off after hours, but also um, the siblings and all that sort of thing. And we're working on, you know, just having documents for that. But we would we our plan is to have a number of therapists there and to have the children come in and actually use that time to teach them social skills or their programs work on their programs i mean we have therapists um, after hours in some cases and we really want to start this program that's amazing yeah it's a good that's thing for such parents. a gift for oh parents. my gosh it's just it's ridiculous I, last night it's funny because um I, here's 
one of my odd things. One of the things I like to watch be while I'm falling asleep is a house. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. And last night, for the first time, I actually saw an episode that's pretty old, but it was uh, about a child with autism. I think I've seen that episode. Yeah, and it's kind of you know you always see these, and it's hard when you see them as someone whose life is all about autism because yes. you notice right away all the things that are wrong. Yes. But having said that, <laughs> they did really. Um, many different times, kind of uh, their their uh, narrative and sort of the film plot showed how intense it can be to have a child with autism yeah. and just the life of the parents and how difficult it is. So. We really want to try to help as much as we can in that area. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is so helpful. Okay, you know, give, well, giving good. us a break. That are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, we've talked many times on the show before about what do parents need, and of course, you know, we need more funding and we need more services, and but we need a break. Oh, definitely. Uh, we, need definitely. we need babysitters who know what they're doing. Uh, so yeah, that that's absolutely. huge. That's absolutely huge. I thank you for that. Sure. When that happens, I'm going to take advantage. Definitely. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break and come back more with Dr. Doreen Grampuche after these messages. Stick with us. Okay. Uh, our next question, by the way, we're here with Dr. Doreen Grampuche, <laughs> and I take time off to talk about bamboo mats. Uh, but Dr. Grampuche, who is a true expert in the field of autism, and more than that, she is a visionary that Thank your you. your view, your far-reaching view of autism has really changed the playing field in so many different I directions. So. It has, and it continues to, and uh, such an, a wonderful opportunity for you at home to be asking her questions, pick her brain in this period of time. Uh, okay. So we have a parent who wants to know when enrolling a two-year-old non-verbal child with autism spectrum disorder in a school for full-time ABA, what should we look for? How do you determine if the facility is adequate or doing ABA the right way? Oh, what a fantastic question. Yeah. We actually have, we used to have, and I hope they, I don't know, marketing sometimes will change the website's content, but... We used to actually have a section called uh, what is a good ABA provider. Mm -hmm. um, let me see if I can try to go through some of the key points here because this is a very, very good question. Um, okay, so this is interesting. I didn't know that there are too many uh, full-time schools or, you know, for ABA, but well, we have one, mm -hmm. um, so I guess they're spreading all over the place. What you're looking for, you're, I guess, primarily, uh, there's a lot of things you're looking for. You're looking to, everything that I'm going to list, I think, will give you, uh, goes under the heading of does the provider know what they're doing? Um, and there are different ways to evaluate does the provider know what they're doing. The first way would be, um, does the provider really understand my child? So I think that is probably the most important because the children are extremely different from each other. And if you see that your child is being kind of just cookbooked and put in there and just dealt with in the same way as everybody else, or they're not, they're not open to taking in specific feedback about your child, then you might want to watch it a little bit further. Um, you know, it's difficult because this is an ABA school. I hope and pray and hope that gradually my field of ABA will uh, become a little bit more open-minded and accept things like uh, medication, dietary change, sensory issues. These things are usually not accepted by 
behavioral providers. So it's uh, very, very important that the school considers all of those things. Obviously, if you decide your child needs to be on a diet, then you want to make sure the school is able to implement yeah. the diet. If you decide that your child, if you have experience that your child has a lot of sensory issues, the sensory stuff becomes vital to the success of your behavioral program. We just talked a little bit about sort of how using sensory things will decrease the level of energy or increase or so on and get the child more focused. But even beside that, aside from that, your visual inputs, like sometimes with children, they will not receive auditory inputs very well. So ABA is generally vocal instruction. And if the child is not able to understand vocal instruction, so me giving, telling you something to do, then we, we will, within the first couple of months, identify that and start going to visual instruction. So sometimes the children will speed through when you have a visual modality of instruction, like pictures or icons. That does not mean that the child can't revert back to verbal. Um, it just is a prompting. It's sort of a, a presence of instruction that stays in front of the child so they have a, a longer time to process it. So being able to flip back and forth between your child's needs is very important. Like being able to modify things in order to behave, environmental things. You know, will the child need stimuli presented like flat on the table or like this? Does the child focus better if the background is noise level is this, that, or all those types of things make it kind of very important. And then another way of measuring sort of does the provider know what they're doing is your child should generally after the first, I would say, and if it's a full-time school and your child's two, this should be pretty fast. I would say within the first month or two, uh, your child should be just a really happy there. If your child is continuing <clears throat> to have a lot of behavioral issues, then there's a number of things that could be going wrong. Mm -hmm. Either they're bored, um, the, the stimuli are not changing fast enough for them, they're not rewarded enough, mm -hmm. which is a huge important factor. I mean, ABA is worthless if there isn't enough reinforcers. Um, the, maybe the material is too hard. Uh, maybe the behavioral provider is not paying attention to the right functions. Like this is one of the things that I find also with some of our junior uh, staff who are in training to become supervisors. You know, it's really important. A behavior can start out with one function or one reason and then change. Like, uh, or it can have multiple functions and you fix one and, and the others remain. Just as an example, that means a child could tantrum because they want access to something, but they also want attention, right? And so you will perhaps teach them not to tantrum in order to get access to something, but they still will tantrum because now they just want your attention. Yeah. So these are very important things you have to identify in order for ABA to work. The right balance of ABA will always keep your child happy, should always keep your child happy. Another thing that I found with providers is they don't learn to read the child well enough so that they are not identifying antecedents, like they're not identifying things that in the child are just about to lead to 
a tantrum or a disruption or the child's running away or whatever it is. There are lots of things that you can recognize before a behavior happens. And if you can very quickly redirect the child and very quickly manage that thing, um, sometimes the session will just go fine. A lot of times people don't recognize them. They just kind of become robotic almost yeah. and force the child through things. There's so many things. I mean, maybe looking at the provider, you should also evaluate how much training their staff receives. Do you have qualified people in charge of the program? Like every program should really have uh, a BCBA or someone who's licensed and experienced in treating kids with autism. Again, even if it's a BCBA, the individual needs to have 